Well, all right. Man, you guys look great this morning. Like, you are a good-looking 10 o'clock crowd. And, uh, you know, everybody seems to have a little pep in their step. There must be a lot of Kentucky fans in the room this morning. I don't know if that's what it is. But um, they say offerings are up when your team win. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But that was a joke. Offering joke. Whoops. Not supposed to make those. Okay. Anyway, uh, man, so excited to be uh, in week four of this series, I'm a Big Hypocrite, and we've just been taking some time to, um, to kind of own the fact that we're all a little bit a mess, to own the fact that we're all a little bit broken, to own the fact that we all care a little too much about what people think about us, and we all live a little bit um, in the perception game more than we do in the reality game, and, um, and that, you know, that a lot of people try to label us, and a lot of people, as a matter of fact, the number three reason that people don't go to church is they say because it's filled with hypocrites. And we just kind of said in their series, like, yeah, and? Yeah, we are, you know, and so are you. We're all, we're all broken, but we're all work in progress. That God has a future for us, that God has a hope for us, and this is not just cliche, but our best days really are ahead of us. Our best days really are ahead of us, and so, yeah, we are a mess. Yeah, we are a little bit broken, but we're not finished, and, and God's doing something at us. And so we've, we've looked at this from several different you know, angles and several different um, uh, ways. I'm really excited uh, about this topic. You know, a lot of times I, uh, you know, I'm two or three weeks ahead, I'm, so I'm working on a sermon, and then I preach it maybe two or three weeks later as far as topic and stuff. I'm, I'm finalizing it the week of, but there are other times where like I'm way ahead of the game, maybe as I'm doing some sermon prep, or maybe during just some times of fasting, I just feel like I, I get a lot more done in my sermons and stuff like that. And this series was one that we were working on uh, this summer, and just several months ago. And I was doing a lot of travel in the summer, actually too much traveling. I was gone so much this summer, and, and um, with just, you know, while I'm on the airplane, just working and things. And, and while I was working on this message, like, I just, man, just something came alive in me. And I know I've been saying that a lot lately, but I really do mean it, like, um, just was really looking forward to preaching this message in particular. And then I started looking at when we had scheduled the sermons, and I realized that Andrea's due date was like really close to this weekend. So I've been saying, Andrea, you cannot have this baby until Sunday about 1.30, all right? Because I want to preach this message. And Corey's like, man, I'll preach it. I'm like, no, I want, I want to preach this one. So, you know, hold on. Hold, we, had a, we had a scare last night. I'm like, you keep that baby in there till 1.30 tomorrow. You know, so, um, but really excited. Let me, let me tell you like this. Um, uh, my wife and I have been married uh, 10 years this year. We've been married 10 years, which is awesome. And uh, it's just a miracle to God's grace that she uh, hasn't left me. And um, because I was a, a big time work in progress. <coughs> and um, so she says to me a couple of uh, months back, she says, just like randomly, I was not expecting this. She says to me randomly, she says, you know, I've been thinking, like, it may be time to upgrade my wedding ring. And I'm like, I was just not expecting that. I didn't realize you upgraded wedding rings. Like, nobody told me that. I thought you got a wedding ring when you got, you know, at your wedding, so to speak. And then I thought, like, that's, that's your wedding ring. You understand what I'm saying, guys? Like, I, I didn't, some of you guys, you didn't know. Like, I'm telling you, they think about upgrading the ring. And I'm, I, it was caught me totally off guard. And, and so she begins to tell me, like, you know, well, you know, we, we, we've got more money than we did, which that was a true statement, because, like, we were living on love. I, I bummed, like, 800 bucks off my mom, you know, and I don't even think I paid her back. And I went and picked out the best ring I could find, white gold, half carat. 
They said they could cut them up into little pieces, make it look bigger. I'm like, yes, what, do that, you know. And, um, and so, you know, I mean, it was only $800, but it might as well have been $8 million because, it, I mean, it's like, I gave her the ring, and, and it was incredible. And so all, she just says to me all of a sudden, she's like, I think it's time to upgrade the ring. And I'm, I'm like, how, how could you? How could you upgrade the ring? Like, you can't put a value on the sentimental value of that ring right there. Now, truth be told, I didn't really care if she got the sentimental value. I just didn't want to have to pay for another ring, okay? We're just being honest with you here. Um, So I made it sound like it was about sentimental value. But I didn't understand necessarily why she'd want to do that. But then let me also tell you a little bit about me. I upgraded my phone last week, okay? And, um, And then last year I upgraded my iPad and then when we moved into our house, I upgraded my TV, and uh, I like to upgrade, okay? I just don't like to upgrade wedding rings for my wife, but I love to upgrade my stuff, and you do too. All of us, like, nobody wants to have, unless you're a collector maybe, nobody wants to have old things. Nobody wants to have things that you feel like you could do better, but you settle for that. And why do we do that? Why do we upgrade? Why do we want to get the new phone? Why do we want to upgrade the wedding ring? Why do we want to you know, get a nicer TV. Well, there's probably lots of very carnal reasons and and perception reasons. I'm sure that's there, but that's not what I want to talk about today. I think we do it because we don't want to know that there's something better out there and to feel like we have something that's not as good. I think at some kind of level, that's if, if there's something better out there, we are at least interested, if possible, in in attaining that and getting that and not kind of settling, if you will, and so we, you know, we try to figure out ways how we can upgrade. And the reason I tell you all that is because, as, you know, as I was thinking about that and, and where we're going today and what we're saying, I wonder why, I don't say this in a condemning way, but I wonder why we don't feel the same way about our relationship with God. Like, I wonder why, and this is going to sound so preacher condemning here, but let me just say it this way. I wonder why we don't care about upgrading our relationship with God as much as we do our wedding rings, our phones, our TVs, and our iPads. And, and here's what I mean by that, is that how come we don't mind settling in our relationship with God, and, 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 and we know there's something better out there, we know that there is, uh, you know, an upgrade opportunity out there, we could experience more of God, we could have a better relationship with God, we, could, we know that that opportunity is out there, but unlike everything else in our life, we a lot of us don't have a problem kind of just settling for what we have and saying, well, this is what I have and this is, this is good enough. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about upgrading, if you will. I want to talk about not settling. And I want to show you a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. If you have a Bible or it's on your phone or, you know, whatever. And if not, it'll be up on the screen, which it's kind of actually going in and out on us today. We apologize about that. We'll figure it out for next week. But um, the, the scripture will be up there. Second Chronicles chapter 9. And this is about a guy named King Solomon. Solomon was the third king in Israel. It was King Saul. It was King David. And Solomon was David's son. And, and so Solomon was the wealthiest, wisest most powerful man on the earth. Like, God was blessing Solomon in an unbelievable way. I mean, honestly, because of some promises that he made to David, uh, Solomon was in the sweet spot. It was incredible. And in this story, in Second Chronicles chapter 9, 
the word about Solomon has, has gotten out to other regions and countries and lands. And, um, and the queen of Sheba decides to come and uh, she wants to investigate. Like, is Solomon the real deal? Is everything I'm hearing about Solomon legitimate? Is he really this wealthy? Is he really this wise? Is he really this powerful? And so she shows up and she spends, let's just say, the weekend with Solomon. And she says to him, you are the real deal. Like, everything I've heard is true. You are wise. You are wealthy. You are powerful. Like, you really are um, incredible. And she brought with her all sorts of gold and wood and animals and gifts and she gave them to Solomon. What she's trying to do is she's trying to kind of get in the good graces with the wealthiest, wisest, most powerful man in the world. And so, and so she gives Solomon all of these gifts. And we're going to pick up in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Queen, she, Queen of Sheba has left now. And it says, each year Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. And this did not include the additional revenue he received from merchants and traders. All the kings of Arabia and the governors of the provinces also brought gold and silver to Solomon. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, each weighing more than 15 pounds. And he also made 300 smaller shields of hammered gold, so it's 500 total gold shields, each weighing more than 7.5 pounds. And the king placed these shields in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. So they've got several different palaces. He puts the 500 shields in the palace, uh, in the forest of Lebanon. So this represents like this sweet spot that Solomon in. Like it's a great time for Israel. It's a great time for Solomon. Everything is working. And you've probably had seasons like that in your life where it just seems like everything is working. The job's good. The marriage is good. The money's good. You know, life is good. This is what's happening right now for Solomon. But like all of us, and like the human race in general, we can't stand prosperity. And Solomon begins to uh, wander away from God. And, and his heart begins to get torn away. And he begins to worship some other gods and worship idols. And God was, was frustrated with Solomon. But because of some promises he had made to David, he did not take Solomon out as king. He let Solomon finish out his reign as king. But after Solomon's uh, reign was done... The kingdom was split in two. So Israel now gets separated into two kingdoms. And different kings, um, different kings, you know, there's a, there's a different king for each, you know, for each region. And so the king that we're going to look at in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, his name is Rehoboam. Everybody say Rehoboam. Okay, say it one more time. Rehoboam. Okay, you just learned some Bible trivia, all right? King Rehoboam was one of the kings of Israel. And he's serving now, uh, two generations later, after Solomon, after everything was going great for Israel, about two generations later, now Rehoboam is the king. And I want to show you what happens. God is not looking favorably on Israel anymore. And I want to show you what happens. It says, so King Shishak of Egypt came up and attacked Jerusalem. He ransacked the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the royal palace. He stole everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. King Rehoboam later replaced them with bronze shields as substitutes, and he entrusted them to the care of the commanders of the guard who protected the entrance of the royal palace. 
Verse 11, whenever the king went to the temple of the Lord, the guards would also take the shields and then return them to the guard room. So let me just kind of explain what's happened here. God is not looking favorably on Israel anymore, so he's not protecting them from their enemies. Egypt comes and attacks Israel, uh, and the, the king Shishak did this, and, and he doesn't capture Rehoboam. He doesn't capture the land, but he does rob and steal everything from the treasury. And I don't think that it's a coincidence. I believe that when the Bible puts something specific in there, it wants us to know it for a reason. And it says he stole everything, yes, but then it wants us to know. Look, he stole everything, including all the gold shields that Solomon had made. There's something about these shields, right? Including all the gold shields that Solomon had made. So let's just kind of recap real quick, okay? Solomon is king. Everything's going great. Solomon's in a sweet spot. He's wealthy. He's wise. He's powerful. People are sending him gold. People are sending him treasures. And he builds 500 gold shields. Solomon wanders away from God. His heart gets torn away from God. After he dies, the kingdom is split in two. Uh, Two generations later, now King Rehoboam is king. Egypt attacks. They steal all the wealth, all the treasury. Now Egypt is in a low place. The bank account is empty. Morale is low. It's not in a great place. And look at what it says in verse 10. It says, King Rehoboam replaced the gold shields with bronze shields as substitutes. And he put them in the palace, the closet, if you will. And whenever the king went to the temple of the Lord, they would take them out and return them to the guard room. The reason I read these stories to you out of Second Chronicles is because I believe that symbolically they represent what so many of us do in our lives and what so many of us do in our relationship with God. I believe Solomon's story in 2 Chronicles 9 represents those times when we feel like we are in a sweet spot with God. That, we, that, that, that things are working, God is speaking, we are experiencing him, we feel his presence. We are in a great place in our relationship with God. I believe 2 Chronicles 12 and Rehoboam represents those times when we're not. When, when the relationship with God is maybe hanging on by a thread, when when we don't feel him near, when it doesn't feel like prayers are being answered, when it doesn't feel like he's speaking. And what Rehoboam did in 2 Chronicles 12, I believe, is what you and I do on a regular basis. Rehoboam made sure that even though things were going bad, he made sure that people thought things were going good. Isn't that what just happened? Solomon's gold shields get stolen. Rehoboam replaces them with bronze shields. And and, I mean, it's almost spooky the way it speaks to our lives in verse 11. He doesn't leave them out all the time. He doesn't get the bronze shields out and hold them up because if he did that, everyone would notice. If he just gets them out every now and then, then gold looks like bronze from a distance and nobody will really know. And he could say, hey, things are going great. So he leaves them in the closet. Rehoboam gets them out. And look what it says. It says the guards would only get the shields out when Rehoboam was going to the temple, and then they would put them back in. So let me just modernize this for us where we are today, because this is where we are. Things are going terribly, but when Rehoboam goes to church, he makes sure that the people think things are going great. That's what, that's what just happened in this story. 
Rehoboam has created the perception that things are good. Let me, let me put it to you this way. Rehoboam has figured out a way to make everyone around him think he's doing better than he actually was. He, he figured out a way to make it look like things were as good as they were when Solomon was in his sweet spot. And you know, for, for a while, and maybe for a really long time, you can fool people. Bronze looks like gold. And from a distance, who can really tell, right? It's kind of like on Twitter and Facebook, when you look at somebody's profile pic, and like when it's really small, you're like, oh, you know, they're kind of attractive. And then you click on it, you're like, whoa, like that's not, don't judge me. Y'all do the same thing, okay? Y'all do the same thing. Be like, okay, when it was, when it was zoomed out, okay, not bad. <laughs> when we zoomed in, okay, you know what I'm saying? So, so from a distance, you can fool people. I mean, you can. We all do. We've all done it. It's easy to do, actually. From a distance, bronze looks like gold, and there's no big deal. And it doesn't take us long to figure out how to play the game and work on the perception that things are going great, that my relationship with God is strong. I'm doing well, right? I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. But I gave my heart to Christ when I was about 16, really about 15, 16 years old. Really seriously committed my life to Christ. I asked him to be the Savior of my life, committed to him. I'm 31 now, so it's been about 15 years that I've been serving God. And there have been seasons in those 15 years where I have been faking it so bad. And nobody knew. Nobody knew. I mean, my wife can usually tell because she reads me really well, but nobody knew. Wasn't reading my Bible, wasn't praying, wasn't hearing God speak, wasn't feeling God's presence. I mean, we could have been worshiping or I could have been singing, take me out to the ball game. It wouldn't matter a bit to me because there's no connection to God. I'm not feeling it. I'm struggling with sins. I feel like I, I'm in dark places. I'm struggling with depression. And nobody knew. Sometimes it would go on for months and nobody knew. And you know, you know why nobody knew? Because bronze looks like gold. And whenever I needed to get it out for a quick look and let everybody inspect and let everybody see it while I'm going to church, while I'm going to the temple, that's what I did, just like Rehoboam, and nobody knew. And I'd be willing to bet I'm not the only one. I'd be willing to bet that you struggle with the same thing too. And you hear me say this all the time, but it's so true that... that so many of us work harder on the perception of our relationship with God than we do our actual relationship with God. And it's actually harder. You, you're putting more effort into being perceived as spiritual than the effort it would take to just be spiritual. It's, it's harder work. And can I tell you something? Having a fake relationship with God is exhausting exhausting you work harder at a fake relationship with God than you ever do with a real relationship with God and it wears you out and it's exhausting because you know you're faking it and you're trying to make sure that no one else fakes it and can I be honest it's not even really your fault it's this culture that we've created in church that just says you know what everybody's got to be doing good all the time the reality is we're not always doing good all the time we're just not and so we, yes, we got saved. Yes, we gave our hearts to Jesus. But beyond that, like, we don't have a relationship. No one else would really know. 
But we have this fake relationship with God. Never hearing him speak, never feeling him near us, never feeling like we're growing. All while keeping up the appearance that we are, and it's exhausting. And really all it is, is religion. It's not a relationship with God, it's religion. This is actually how I define religion. Religion is doing things that people who have a relationship with God do without actually having a relationship with God. That's what religion is. Religion is going through the motions and doing the things that people who have a relationship with God do without having, actually having a relationship with God. And if all you experience is religion, you don't know Jesus. And you don't know what a thriving, life-giving, fresh relationship with God feels like. And even as I'm saying this right now, some of you in the room may feel like, well, Jay, I don't even really, I don't know. Maybe I've never even experienced the real thing. Maybe I just was, you know, went to church as a kid because my parents made me go and then I can't. I don't know if I've ever even experienced the real thing. Like how, I think maybe I might have a fake relationship with God, a bronze relationship with God. How do we know? I mean, we, you know, you know, I feel like we know, we know in our heart and when we hear the truth of the gospel, it, it, it resonates with us. But I wrote down a couple of ways, just thinking back on my life and seasons of faking it in my life and people that I know who have faked it and, you know, growing up in some churches where everybody was faking it. I just, I, I have written down some, some just things that were happening in my life that are indicators for me, even now that I may be slipping into a non-life-giving relationship with God. What are some indicators that, that I've slid into a fake relationship with God? I think maybe the biggest one is that I talk like morality is the most important thing. I talk like keeping rules is the most important thing. Let me say it to you this way. It becomes more about what I don't do than what I do. Probably the biggest indicator for a fake religious relationship with God is that you are focused on what you cannot do instead of the things that God wants you to do. It's a list of rules. Are you breaking the rules? Will somebody find out that you're breaking the rules? Are other people breaking the rules? Because religion is about rules and lists. And a life-giving relationship with God is about speaking and obedience. And we've talked about that at length. But here's another one. Uh, I, keep, I keep spiritual relationships at a distance. I'm not honest. So the reason nobody could know that I was faking it is because I never allowed anyone to get close enough to realize I was faking it. Right? So I'm not going to get in a small group. I'm not going to get in a connect group. I, I'm not going to have coffee with a friend. I'm not going to go out to dinner with some people who I know will ask me the tough questions and will investigate my heart, investigate my life. Keep everyone at a distance because from a distance, bronze looks like gold. So just keep everybody at a distance. Somebody says, how you doing? I say, fine. When's the last time you had just a gut, gut level, gut honest conversation about your heart? I have somebody in my life who has gotten into the habit of saying to me about once a week, how's your heart? How's your heart? And when somebody asks, how's your heart, you can't just be like, oh, yeah, I'm good. Like, you got to think about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, how is my heart? I had a really tough lunch a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to somebody about it, just a, a tough meeting and a, just some emotional stuff and, and just working through some stuff. And as I was talking to them, they just said, hey, how's your heart? And when somebody is asking you those questions, you, you can't fake it. You can't fake it. And you don't want to. But you've got to stop keeping 
spiritual relationships at a distance. I know for me, I was always more angry than I was compassionate. Just always angry. Mad at people. You know, mad at people who are sinning. Mad at people who are not sinning. You know, angry at the president. Angry at the media. Angry at culture. You know, angry at, I don't know, who. Just anybody. Just finding somebody to be mad at. Somebody to be angry at. Instead of compassionate. I don't ever feel like the good Samaritan. I, I feel like just an angry religious person. Wanting to know why the world's going to hell and just, I mean, just, just, and, and when I, when I find myself always angry, that's usually an indicator that I have slid out of a thriving, life-giving relationship with God. Are there times I'm going to get frustrated? Absolutely. Jesus got angry one really good time. That happens. But Jesus was a compassionate man who even when he encountered other people's despicable sins, never was angry at them, always wanted to help them. And I can tell when my relationship with God is thriving and life-giving because that's the way I feel about people too, instead of anger. Uh, I condemn in others what I condone in myself is another one. Andrew and I were actually on the way to church today. We were talking about a situation at her school and I, I almost said something condemning about someone, and I started laughing because I said, and I told her what I almost said, and I was like, you and I did that like two years ago. <laughs> but I don't ever think about what I did. And we talked about that last week. We judge others, and we never take the time to judge ourselves. And I, and I, I just, I, that's, a, that's always an indicator for me. An indicator for me is that I'm always judging other people, and I'm never judging myself. I'm condemning in others what I condone in myself. And it's just exhausting. I mean, it's just exhausting. A fake relationship with God is exhausting. So what do we do? How do we have a real relationship with God? How do we have a thriving, fresh relationship with God? Well, I want to give you two things this morning that are really simple uh, and not profound at all, but are so accurate to what I believe it takes to have a, a, a fresh, real relationship with God. Number one is, we have to be able to move on from past experiences. And I don't mean this like most of the time we would mean it in church. I don't mean move on from past bad experiences. I, I mean it like we have to move on from past positive experiences with God. And that may sound odd, and maybe every, this won't apply to everybody in the room, but I think some of us, a lot of us, had experiences 5, 10, 15 years ago with God, and, and there was some type of experience, a camp, a retreat, a youth group, something, and we felt closer to God at that time than we ever did and ever have since that time, and we desperately want God to recreate that time. Does that make sense, everybody? So some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you, you're like, no, I never had a thriving time with God. Okay, we'll come to you in just a second. But those of you who, when I just said that, you go, yes. We've got to be willing to let go of those past experiences. Because God is a creator of new things. And he wants to do something new in our lives. But we keep wanting him to recreate old experiences. And I, and I see this so many times and I talk to people, and, 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 you know, they're talking to me as their pastor, and when you ask them about, you know, relationship with God, thriving relationship with God, all their stories are like 15 years ago. All their stories are about the youth group that they grew up in. Oh, and man, we did this, and oh my God, we worshiped for like three hours, and oh my God, and it's like, it's, 
what's happened is unless they can recreate that, they, don't, they can't know Jesus in a, in a powerful, thriving, life-giving way. And maybe it's not, maybe it was not about some church experience 15 years ago, but maybe it was six months ago when you gave your life to Jesus Christ and it was an incredibly powerful emotional time, as it should be because becoming a new person in Christ is a powerful emotional moment. But you did that six months ago and now you're like, I did it, but I don't feel like I did then and I, I don't know that I've had a relationship with God. Listen, we've got to move on from past experiences some of us are trying to serve God, thriving, faithfully, life-giving relationship with God. And we've slid into a hypocritical lifestyle. And it, it's only natural because we're serving, trying to serve God off gas that was put in the tank six months, six years, ten years ago. And, and we're running on fumes. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. Love that. Love that. Because God did some incredible things back then. Six months ago, six years ago, 15 years ago. He did. Listen, I, I live this. I got from, from age 16 to about 19, God did some incredible things in my life actually gave me a platform and, and some influence. I was traveling. I was speaking in youth groups. I was leading music groups. Uh, I mean, some incredible things. It's when I met my wife, and we joke all the time, you know, about how I peaked at 18. And, and, and here, but here's the point why I say all that. That season of those three years was unbelievable. I'm 31. I'm pastoring a church. I can't go to God and say, God, will you make it like it was when I was 16 or 18 years old? I need God to do something new in me for today and tomorrow and not try to recreate something from 15 years ago because that's what God wanted to do in me 15 years ago. But not, not anymore. It, it happens in this church. When our church broke 300 in attendance for the first time, we had been trying to do that for years and years and years. We, we believe that this church is going to have influence in the south end of Louisville. And we're like, man, why isn't it growing? And why isn't there 300 people here? And when we broke 300, dude, we are high-fiving. We're doing laps. We're like, yes, it was incredible, you know. And then can I just tell you the truth? For like six months, we just sat at our desk and was like, wow, that was awesome that we did that. And we didn't go back to God for fresh vision. We didn't go back to God for fresh dreams. We didn't go back to God and say, God, will you do a new thing? Man, we just kept looking at our trophy. We don't, we don't actually have a trophy, but you understand what I'm saying. Like, we just kept like, that was so cool six months ago. That was so cool six months ago. But, but if we want a thriving relationship with God, as awesome as the missions trip was four years ago, and the youth group was, and giving your life to Christ, and the retreat, listen, as awesome as those things were, we've got to let go and move on from past experiences. And then the second thing that we need to have a real relationship with God is we have to be open to new experiences. We have to be open to new experiences with God. We're letting go of old experiences and we're saying, God, will you do something new in my life? Here's the question. Do you actually want God to do something new in your life? Because when you have a fake relationship with God, you hold all the control. And control is a nice thing. God's never going to ask you to do anything you don't want to do. 
He's never going to ask you to obey in any areas you don't want to obey. He's never going to inconvenience your schedule. Nothing. But a real relationship with God says, God, I'm waiting on you to give me instruction, and then I'm going to obey. So you may not actually want God to do something new in you because it will change your whole routine. And a fake relationship with God is exhausting, but at least you have control. So if I want life-giving, thriving, fresh relationship with God... I've got to give God permission to do something new in me. And a lot of times, when God's doing something new in me, I'm a little bit uneasy. I'm a little bit unsettled. I don't know exactly how to explain it. Sometimes he's pushing me beyond my comfort zone, and I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. Whenever God's doing something new in me, it, there's always an element of the unknown that is faith-filled and exciting So let me ask you this question. When's the last time you felt like you had a fresh experience with God? When's the last time you felt like you had a fresh experience with God? When's the last time you felt like he talked to you? And even as I say that, some of you are like, whoa, Jason, like God talked to me. Listen, Okay, let me put it this way. When's the last time you were reading your Bible and you just got a thought in your head that you thought, I don't know if I'm that smart. Maybe that was God. When's the last time you were in the presence of God? You were worshiping and you, you got chills on your arms. or You started crying or you felt like, man, God is with me. When's the last time? When's the last time you put yourself in an environment to hear from God? Fresh experience with God. I want to close by reading this verse to you. Jeremiah uh, chapter 2. For the longest time I struggled with the Old Testament because I never, it never made sense to me because it's so out of order. You may not know this, but uh, like the books in the Old Testament are not in chronological order at all. And it always confused me. And it's, it's easy to confuse me. You don't have to work very hard. And so I never really got it. And so I started reading a chronological reading plan which pretty much just puts the Bible in chronological order so things are actually happening, like Job's at the end, and it needs to be all the way at the beginning, right? So, like, those kind of things. And when I started doing that, man, it started coming alive. And specifically, a lot of the prophets and minor prophets, Jeremiah, things like that, it never really made sense to me where they were putting the Old Testament made sense. And so I'm reading through this one day in Jeremiah, and, like, I'm like, okay, wow. Oh, you're talking about God giving you an idea, God giving you a thought, and you're like, I'm not that smart. This is one of those times, and... I'm reading Jeremiah 2, and I just felt like that this is a message that God wants his people to hear. This is what it says in Jeremiah 2. God is talking to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is, is relaying the message, and he says, For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me. This is God talking. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. So this is God talking, and he says, okay, I'm frustrated with my people because my people have done two things. The first thing that they did is they walked away from me, and then God describes himself as the fountain of living water. 
God's describing himself as that way. And when God says, I am the fountain of living water, God does not mean I'm a water fountain of living water. God doesn't mean like you press the button and there's a little stream and it's a cute little fountain. No, no. God says, I'm the fountain. He doesn't mean like I'm that weird white angel fountain thing in front of people's houses that spit out. That's not what God's saying he's a fountain of. God is saying, I am the fountain. I am a fountain of living water. The greatest, most incredible fountain you could ever imagine. I am a fountain of living water. That's how God described himself. When I read that, I thought, what's the greatest fountain that I know? I thought about the Bellagio in Las Vegas, right? I actually brought a video. I want to show this to you. I think. There we go. God says, I am a fountain of living water. You can kill it, guys. I'm a fountain of living water. God says, that, that's me right there. I'm that. And he said, there's two things that are really ticking me off right now. The first thing is, my people have walked away from that. And the second thing that they did was once they walked away from that, they dug for themselves cracked cisterns that hold no water at all. So they would dig these wells, so to speak, and, and, if, the, and if the cisterns had, had, had cracks in them, then obviously they wouldn't hold any water. And we're not digging a well today, but cisterns are really just containers that hold water. And so God says, I'm the fountain of living water. I'm that. That's incredible. That's epic. That's what I am. And for some reason, my people have walked away from that and they want this. Like, I want to do that in their lives. I, wanna, I want to give them new experiences that wow them and awe them and blow them away. But they didn't want that. They, they walked away from that. And instead of having a relationship with God that looks like that, they want a relationship with God that looks like this. And God says in Jeremiah, that upsets me. Why would anybody want this? This can't even hold water. It's a mess. It's broken. It's, it's pieced together. It's... I am a fountain of living water. And can I tell you something? I believe that so many of us in the room today could have that relationship with God, but we choose to have this relationship with God. A bronze, fake, phony relationship that is lifeless and stale and can hold no water at all. And God says, I want to give you the real thing. I want to give you the real thing. The question is, do you want the real thing? Because this relationship with God is exhausting and incredibly disappointing. Let's pray. God, 
I don't know why as a civilization, as people, we have always chosen the fake, the phony. God, you give us an invitation to have a real relationship with you, a thriving, life-giving, alive relationship with you. But for some reason, God, we choose the fake and the phony and the bronze and we're running on fumes. God, just forgive us for that. And God, would you do something new in our lives? New experiences, fresh experiences. Light a match, revive in us a real fresh relationship with God this morning. The real deal. Not the fake stuff we only get out when we go to church. God, will you do that this morning in our lives? Nobody looking around, everybody's head bowed, eyes closed. Maybe you're here today, and as I was talking and speaking, I'm talking about the real deal and not having a fake relationship with God, and you would say, Jason, I, I don't even have a relationship with God. Now, it's not even a fake one. I just don't even have one. And I can't even totally explain it, but right now in this moment, I just kind of I feel like I'm supposed to give my life to Jesus Christ. I feel like I'm supposed to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you, you, you have had a fake relationship with God. You never have really experienced a life-giving, real relationship. And you'd say, Jason, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ and experience the real thing. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to make you stand up or, or come down front or anything like that. But if you're here today and you would say, Jason, yeah, I, I want to pray a prayer with you. And I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I'm ready for the real thing. Would you just lift up your hand and just make eye contact with me? Just say, Jason, I want to give my life to Christ. Yeah, just keep it up for one second, please. Keep it up. They're going to bring you a bag. That's it, I promise. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah, keep it up. They're coming to you. Once they give you the bag, you can put it down. Nobody's looking. Nobody's watching. Yeah. Hands going up all over the room. Just keep it up. They're coming to you. We're not going to embarrass you. We promise. Yeah. Anybody else should say, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to live for Jesus. You can put it down after they give you the bag. Anybody else should say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Just a few more seconds. I'm ready to follow Jesus. Surrender my life. Not some religion, not some church attendance game. A real relationship with Christ. All right, everybody look at me. Matter of fact, everybody stand up with me. Stand up with me. We're going to pray a prayer together for the so many hands that went up this morning. We're going to pray a prayer together. And I'm going to ask everybody to pray it to give some confidence and some boldness to those who are maybe praying it for the very first time. Maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you wanted to and you were scared. Like You're not disqualified. If you'll pray this prayer and you'll mean it with all of your heart, Jesus Christ is going to save you. He's going to wash away your sins and set you on a new path and make you a new person for a real relationship with God. So can we pray this together? Dear Jesus. I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. The next time I fall, help me to get back up and run to you and not away from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we put our hands together for everybody who gave their heart to Jesus this morning? Come on, let's celebrate that. It's incredible.
Amen. I hope you guys had a great time this morning. Did you enjoy this message? I'm a big hypocrite. It's been an awesome series. Lots of, uh, you know, hard-hitting, introspective stuff to make you think about your personal relationship with Christ. Um, share, share the word. Spread the word. Help us get some more people in here. We've got three services Saturday night, two services on Sunday. We've opened up and expanded, so you guys have room to invite some new family, new friends. Um, I want to encourage a couple of you guys this morning. If you got that bag with the, uh, the stuff because you raised your hand to commit your life to Christ, there's a card in there. We want you to fill that out and get it back, not just so we can keep track of numbers. I mean, certainly we want to do that. But, but more importantly, we want to connect with you. We want you to know if you've committed this morning or at any point to a life with Christ, to follow him, to try to live for him, that's just, the, that's just the starting point. That's just the first step. It's not the end. It's not. It doesn't mean life is perfect and all that's over. It means you're at the beginning of a new and a fresh life, and we want to help you to, to take those next steps. We want to walk with you. We want to encourage you. We want to be your church family. So the best way for that to happen is for you to give us the opportunity to connect back with you. Um, so fill those cards out. Drop those in the offering boxes on the way out or get those to one of us on your way out today. And um, we would love to have those. Speaking of connecting, don't forget, before you guys leave this morning, we have small groups going on or connect groups. Tuesday nights, men's Bible study, women's Bible study, 630 here at the church. We are also starting a new connect group on Wednesday, October the 15th. Everybody say 15th. That is a week from Wednesday. It's called Fresh Start, actually. So if, if you just got saved this morning or if you've been saved for a while and you're trying to figure out, how do I walk out this faith? How do I walk out this life that God wants me to live as a believer? And you're looking for a, for a way to figure that out and, and take those next steps and feel like in your life, hey, I am ready for a fresh start again. For, it's for new believers or if you've been a Christian for a while and you're just saying, I need help taking those steps to get a fresh start. Come to this Connect group on Wednesday nights. It's here at the church in the cafe starting at 630 on the 15th, a week from Wednesday. That's open to everybody who says, hey, help me get a fresh start. Don't forget that. Also, guys, on your way out today, there are boxes by every exit for you to drop off your tithes, your offerings. That is a place for our regulars to continue to support the ministries we do here at River City. We could not do what we do, and we would not be who we are without you guys. Thanks for being here. We love you. Enjoy your Sunday. We'll see you next week.